Well, um, I have to take you back to April 17th, 2019. And uh, we're going to talk this morning about buildings, why buildings matter. But I'll tell you the story about three buildings. But I got to take it, first of all, back to this April 17th, because I'm starting to get some texts on my phone. And I ignored them like it's always polite to do if you're at lunch with somebody. You ignore your phone, hopefully, usually. Uh, And uh, finally, my curiosity got the best of me. And so I, I looked at my phone and heard that Notre Dame Cathedral was on fire. And that was a disturbing sight to see on my phone. And uh, I went back to my office and, uh, and checked out the news and saw the spire on fire and bent like a twig, and pretty soon it was about ready to fall over. And my heart sank because I thought about the many times that I had been to Paris as a kid. My uncle lived there for a while. Uh, I went to school there for six months when I was in college. And then Cindy and I went there when we were on vacation in 2013, rented a, a hotel room in eyeshot of Notre Dame Cathedral, and we, we, just, we passed it by every day on our vacation, taking for granted this incredible work of, of art, well, sort of. Um, people who knew me called me, and they, they would say, did you hear the news about Notre Dame Cathedral? And everybody I talked to that day personalized it. And they said, well, we were there, and they named the date, and they talked about the impact that that building had on their lives. Talking about, hey, we were there for Easter, or yeah, we were there and just enjoyed a concert. It was an amazing concert. But they talked about the impact that building had on their lives. It touched their soul in some way. And I will tell you that buildings have that kind of impact on us. They have but the potential to touch our souls at a very deep level. I know that many people say, well, you know, buildings are just brick and mortar. You know, they're destined for destruction at some point in time. But here's the deal. We are human beings who occupy bodies, physical bodies. And because we are human beings who occupy physical bodies, we become touched by physical places. And physical places become something that is important to us and they become associated with how we encountered God. So I'll tell you about something that happened to us when we moved to Baltimore in many years ago. Uh, we moved into a, a, a modest house in a nice neighborhood and I was looking for a place in the house where I could read, study, and pray. Well, we had four young kids at the time, and every place was taken in the house except the corner of the basement. And I was not crazy about the corner of that basement, just to be honest with you. I set up a dilapidated card table, I set up a folding chair, and I got up at 5.45 in the morning, and I read, studied, and prayed at that chair. And after about three months, I realized that that place was really special to me. That place was a place where my journal entries were becoming very significant, where my connection with God was becoming very significant. We lived in Baltimore for a total of three years, and the place I missed most in that house was a dingy corner of a dark basement where I connected with the God of the universe. That place became incredibly special toward me. I'm sure you've had 
situations in your life where buildings or parts of buildings became special to you because you encountered the presence of God in that place. And so this morning, I want to show you from the Old Testament why buildings are important in the economy of God. And I want to share with you some, some, some thoughts about the building addition that by God's grace, we hope to, to construct. So if you weren't here last week, this is week two in our, ser- in our series called Transforming the Next Generation. And in this series, we're talking about what we plan, hopefully by God's grace, to see happen here at our church. So I'm going to tell you the story of three buildings. Building number one is the tabernacle. God's portable worship tent was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And we go back to the year 1445 BC. Uh, Israel left Egypt in the great exodus. And over the next two generations, God sought to build a love relationship with his people. To do this, he formed a covenant. And the first five books of the Old Testament are the beginnings of that covenant. And some people read those and they think, gosh, it seems rather harsh. But if you read closely, the God of love is crafting a love relationship with his new nation. It's amazing the number of times the word love is mentioned in the first five books of the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy. So how are the people of Israel going to encounter that love relationship with God? God is going to give them a physical place. He's going to give them a tabernacle, a worship tent. Now, three things were important about this worship tent. First, it had to be portable because they're going to be going from Egypt to the promised land. And then that tabernacle is going to be moved throughout the promised land as they worship in various places. It had to be portable. It also had to be beautiful because that tabernacle had to portray something about the character of the God whom they would serve. It also needed to be royal, royal in the sense that it had to display God as king. And so the central part of the tabernacle was in that building called the holy place. And in the central was called the holy of holies. And what's amazing about that Ark of the Covenant that you see on the screens is that these angels are bowing down to what? What are they bowing down to? There's there's nothing in the middle there where the angels are bowing. But when the glory of God would come to the tabernacle, the tip of the glory cloud would rest on the mercy seat. And so the angels on the cover of and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant are bowing toward the infinite personal God who manifests his presence on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This was to be a place where they would commune with the God who loved them. Question. That looks like a valuable thing up there. Gold Ark of the Covenant, a gold box. How are they going to get the materials for that if they're out in the wilderness? Well, great question. Great question. Something astonishing took place the night before Israel left Egypt. You'll remember that Pharaoh did not want to release his slaves, right? And so uh, to convince Pharaoh, God engineers 10 devastating plagues, the 10th being the worst. The 10th plague meant that all the firstborn of sons and animals would die. And as the angel of death came through the land slaying the firstborn, 
the people of, of Israel were able to gather possessions from the Egyptians. It's like the Egyptians were saying, just, just leave. Get out of here. Here's my nest egg. Here's my wealth. Here's my retirement account. Here's my stuff. You take this and go. Leave. Get out of here. And so Israel plundered the Egyptians. What I find fascinating is that it's not like Moses said, okay, guys, let's put all this stuff together. This is the national bank of Israel. We're going to construct a tabernacle out of all these resources. Didn't do that. Everybody retained these things as their private property because God wants to teach these ex-slaves what it means to learn to be, to be generous. Twelve months later, when the time came to build the tabernacle, God called for an offering. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, there's a, another list of things, and let them make a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. Now, I suppose the people could have said, no, I don't really want to do that. It's my stuff. I got all this gold, man. I've never had gold before. I'm, a, I'm an ex-slave. But what happened was people began to be moved toward generosity. Exodus 35, verse 5, God invites them to consider the possibility of being generous with the things they got when they left Egypt. And then Exodus 35, 22, God encourages some creative giving, like some gifts in kind, or people could give their talents in order to build the tabernacle. In Exodus 36, verse 3, generosity becomes delightfully contagious. When one family saw the generosity of another, they thought, you know, look what they're doing. You know, I, I bet we could do a little bit more because they're, they're doing something that's kind of creative. Let, let's, let's us do something as well. And then generosity became so abundant that Moses had to say, guys, guys, thank you so much. We have so much. We don't need any more. They wanted to come and give more. Moses said, nope, nope, we're, we're good. We, we, don't, we don't need any more. So I want you to imagine this huge pile of raw materials out there in the wilderness. We've got gold and silver and, and precious stones. We have, we have cloth and we have yarn and we have all these materials. God then raises up these master craftsmen who are going to take those raw materials and craft a tabernacle. And finally, the tabernacle is set up. And notice what happens. Exodus 40, verse 33 through 35. Moses erected the tabernacle, and he finished all the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The manifest presence of God showed up in the context of that building. The God of love manifested his supernatural presence so powerfully that Moses, who was used to speaking with God face to face, even Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle because the manifest presence of God was, was so abundant. You know, God is everywhere, right? He is omnipresent. 
present, present everywhere at once. But, you know, here's the thing about the manifest presence of God. Sometimes God allows his presence to be particularly felt and seen in a particular place. And when that happens, it is a delightful, wonderful thing because you, you sense God is here. God is here. I'm in the presence of the infinite personal God. So all I'm saying is this. Sometimes God uses buildings as a place for his manifest presence. That leads us to the second story. And the second story is God's temple. This takes us from 1445 B.C. to 948 B.C. This is the Temple of Solomon, and this is God's architectural, master, his architectural masterpiece. Um, and you think about fast-forwarding 500 years. Think about how much time that is. Uh, the Taos Pueblo is over 500 years old. Okay? The Jamestown Church is about 400 years old. Mount Vernon is over 300 years old. Now, do you think that these buildings have ever been renovated? Of course, because buildings fall into disrepair and they need to be renovated and, and things need to be updated. That always happens. And so uh, the tabernacle, you can imagine, it's, it's like built of cloth. There's the gold and the silver, but there's also a lot of cloth and yarns and things like that. Of course, it would be falling into disrepair after a while. So King David says, you know what I want to do? I want to create not a portable worship tent. I want to create a full-on temple. It's going to be a beautiful temple. It's going to have the same sort of architecture that the tabernacle did, but I want it to be a temple. So David starts by moving the tabernacle into Jerusalem. He moves it up the Kidron Valley. He sets it up by the Gihon Spring, and David is so excited that he dances before the Lord. That's good. People begin to worship in Jerusalem. That's good. But David says, no, I, 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 want, there to be a, I want there to be a temple. And so goes to God in, about it in prayer, and God says, David, no. You are not the person to build the temple. You are and have been a man of war. And it's not right that a man of war create a building dedicated toward peace with God. You're not the one to build it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have your son Solomon build it. David says, okay, okay, great. Well, I want to I prepare the way so the land is ready and the raw materials are ready. And so he buys a tract of land immediately to the north of his palace called the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. That's going to be the site for the temple. And today, that's what we call the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was Mount Moriah, or the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. And David began to assemble the raw materials, and David begins to raise the money for it. David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple will not be for man, but for the Lord. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold, the silver, and he lists a whole bunch of other materials. Moreover, in addition to all I provided, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion, I give it to the house of my God. Apparently, David had, 
his, his personal treasure, his personal wealth, and there was some, also some other wealth set aside in the treasury, and he gave that toward, toward the temple. And so then David said, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself the day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers of the king's work. I want you to notice the heart of David and his leaders as they, as they gave. They gave out of delight for God's future work. It's like David is peering into the future and he's, and he's thinking about a time when people will stream toward Jerusalem, stream toward the temple, and they will worship the God of the universe in that place. He says, man, I'm so excited about that. I want to give in advance to making that happen. And then David inspires his leaders to give. In chapter 29, verse 5, it says they gave willingly. In verse 6, it says they gave generously. And then in verse 7, it says they gave joyfully. Even though the project was not going to be complete for another 10 years, they bought in to the vision of a permanent place to worship the God of the universe. So fast forward to 949 BC, the date that the, that the temple was completed. Um, that's a reasonable picture of what it looked like. Believe me, when this was created, this was like the architectural masterpiece of the Middle East. So now Solomon's going to dedicate this. And he prays a prayer of dedication, and when the dedication prayer is over, fire zooms down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice, and the cloud of glory comes down, swirling down from above, and the tip of that cloud falls into the Holy of Holies, right to where the mercy seat was. And, and the temple is so thick with a mist, a cloud of smoke, that the priests can't come in and minister. It's the same thing that happened in Moses' day. Same thing that happened. And the people fall in awe to the ground, saying, the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. So what I'm saying is this. The God of love uses buildings as a place to manifest his supernatural presence. Now in the third story, we see a twist. The third story, we see a twist because there's going to be a humble new beginning now in the third story. In third story. Now we're going to fast forward another 400 years. Solomon's temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. We talked about that last week. Nebuchadnezzar the Great comes across the land, he besieges Israel, Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed, the temple of Solomon, the great architectural masterpiece is destroyed, and that means that for the next 70 years, the Temple Mount is going to be strewn with ruins and weeds. Nothing's going to be there for the next 70 years. 70 years later, the king of, the king of Persia comes to the throne, and he says, you know what? I want to I wanna rebuild the Temple Mount. I, I want there to be a new temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is a polytheistic, non-believing king. He says, I want there to be a, a new temple in Jerusalem, and he commissions a temple for the true God. Even more incredibly, he encourages the exiles to have a fundraising campaign so that those who go to build the temple have the resources they needed. If I'm doing the math right, and I did this when we did our series on Ezra, 
I, I think there was in excess of 40, the equivalent of $40 million transported to Jerusalem to build the temple. It's a heck of a lot of money. And the work begins. And it begins well, but it, pretty soon it languishes because the enemies of the land discourage them. It languishes for, for many years until Haggai and Zechariah rise up and they, they, get, they get the work done. And finally the work is done, but that's not a very impressive temple, is it? Think about the architectural masterpiece of the tabernacle, pretty neat. Solomon's temple, really pretty neat. This was, this was different. And the people who remembered Solomon's temple, they actually wept when they saw this because they, this is nothing compared to what happened before. Lots of discouragement right up there on the Temple Mount. In time, however, this temple would become amazing. It would become amazing because in 400 years, it becomes the temple that Herod rebuilt and becomes the temple that Jesus knew. But back in the day when it was first built, it was pretty basic. So that raises up a nice question. Did the glory cloud of God come down onto that second temple when it was built? What do you think? You would expect it to happen, right? It happened at the tabernacle, happened at the first temple. Did it come now again? No, not yet. Not yet. That would come 400 years later to the time of Jesus. Because you'll remember that Joseph and Mary and Jesus take the donkey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. They come onto the Temple Mount. And when Joseph and Mary and Jesus arrive on the Temple Mount, who's the glory of God? It's Jesus and the infant son. That little baby Jesus is the glory of God, not coming as a cloud, but coming as a little infant, coming as a little baby boy. Now the glory has re-entered the temple of Jerusalem. The glory has returned. And every time Jesus came back to the temple for the next 30 years, you know, because he came as a kid every year. He came when he was in his ministry. The supernatural presence of God, the glory of God was entering that temple again. And so what I'm saying is this. We have three stories of three buildings. And in, in these three stories of three buildings, we see three themes. And they're themes about glory. Here's the first theme. First theme is this. God loves to use buildings as places for his manifest presence. We got the glory cloud in the first tabernacle and temple. Now we got, we got Jesus himself, the glory of God in the second temple. And so when we, when we think about places, we think about places where the glory of God showed up for us, don't we? So I'm, I was born in Syracuse, New York in March. And when my mom and dad brought me back home, I would say that they were fairly, you know, fairly new believers. They became believers when they were younger, but they were kind of, kind of growing in the faith. My mom made a decision to pray with me every night before bed. And so uh, she prayed with me in, in this humble room, in this humble house in Syracuse, New York. 
I am convinced that my mom's prayers set a trajectory for the next, well, season of my life. So here's what, ha- what happened with that room in my house. For about 15 years after we moved from that house, I had dreams of that room. Dreams of that room being big, important, powerful. Dreams of that room where I encountered something of God. That room became kind of magical in my thinking. Why? Because I was encountering the manifest presence of God in that room as my mom prayed with me before bed. I encountered that numerous other times, but I I picked a random additional time. I'm in graduate school. I'm in a small group of guys. We meet every Friday afternoon from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And one day, about three or four months into this small group, I'm sitting there in that room thinking, there is no place else on planet Earth I would rather be right now than with these guys in this, and, and, and in that room. It was just like a, like a little nondescript office. Small, cramped, six guys doing life together. And I can remember thinking, this is it. This is exactly where I want to be because the manifest presence of God was showing up in that room in fellowship with those, the, those guys. Places are important in, in the plan of God. So our, our aim in constructing an addition to this facility, uh, a youth and children's addition, is that our youth, children, and families might experience something of the manifest presence of God. Every once in a while, like, I'll get glimpses that it's already happening. My daughter, who was, uh, was present with us when we started Grace Community Church, uh, was part of our church f- uh, from the ages of 15 to 18. And she came back last summer. And uh, while we were walking out of the church last summer, she said, Dad, uh, you guys as a church so live up to your name. Like everything I encounter at Grace lives up to the grace of God. I'm really excited about where your church is headed. Now, my daughter, you know, was here at the beginning, and she encountered something at the beginning. Now she's talking as somebody who is in her, who's in her, her, her 30s. What I'm praying is that God would continue and excel in revealing his manifest presence as we construct this addition to our facility. Here's the second theme. second theme is this. God uses buildings as the gracious context for his transforming work. Think back to the tabernacle. In 1100 BC, the tabernacle is set up in the city of Shiloh. Hannah brings her little son, Samuel, to Eli the priest. Hannah says, Samuel, I'm dedicating, Eli, I'm dedicating my son Samuel to the Lord. That means Eli the priest is going to bring him up in and around the tabernacle. And what happens to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3? The manifest presence of God shows up and begins transforming Samuel into a prophet who would then change the country. And our hope and prayer is the same thing would happen, that God would use this new facility as a place for his transforming work for people who are young like Samuel. And here's a third theme I see in the story. A third theme is that God invites his people to share in the creation of 
those, those buildings. Think about the three stories of these three buildings. Where did the wealth come from from, from, from these buildings? In each case, God directed the wealth toward the vision through the action of the people. And so it's interesting, when the tabernacle was built, the wealth was originally from Egypt. And, you know, the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians were giving them the stuff. They said, here, take this, go, get out of here. And God specifically allowed that material to be private property so that the people of Israel would learn the blessings of being able to give. 400 years later, when the temple was built, part of the money from the temple came from David's personal wealth, but a significant part flowed from the leaders. When the second temple was built, incredibly, King Cyrus gave some of the money for the second temple. And then Cyrus proposed that the people of Israel take a free will offering. And so God invites his people to share in the creation of those, of those buildings. And so I see a, a theme, a big idea that runs through these stories, and it's this. The God who cannot be limited to buildings loves to manifest his presence in buildings, especially those buildings devoted to his kingdom purposes and built for the, trans, the purpose of transformation. You know, it's interesting, every once in a while, I will have a couple call me and say, we, we bought a new house. Would you please come and pray over the house and dedicate the house? And I love doing that. I love doing that because I know what's going to happen in that house. So my daughter and son-in-law asked me to go through their house many years ago. It was an apartment, actually, very small apartment uh, in, around London. And I walked through that, and I just prayed, for, prayed over every room. God, bless this room. Bless my daughter and son-in-law in these places. Lord, may this place be a place of your manifest presence, and they will encounter your goodness. God loves to do that. We're human beings. We occupy physical bodies, and therefore buildings become important to us. And God loves to manifest his presence in those places. So with that in mind, let's look at some takeaways uh, for transforming the next generation in grace. Takeaway number one is please understand our heart. Our project is way bigger than just a building. It's way bigger than a building. Our heart is genuine transformation. Now, when you think about transformation, transformation is, is never straight line, right? Here's a picture of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, okay? You look at that, and what you realize is our spiritual growth is a lot like that. We go up, we go down, we go up a little bit, we go down maybe a whole lot in one season, we go way up again. But that graph is up and to the right, which is where you, you want it to be. And our spiritual growth is that way as well, but it's, it's zigzag, it's quirky, sometimes it's very difficult. And so when we think about transformation at Grace Community Church, part of what we're thinking about is people being real with their pain with their anxiety, with their struggles, people being real and learning how to grow through those struggles to a new place. Sometimes when we talk about transformation, you get the impression maybe like, well, that means I've got to be continuously doing awesome, and I'm not. Well, that's not how transformation works. Transformation generally works best when we're going through trials and difficulties and challenges which means at our church, we have to excel at being real and authentic, not engaging in appearance management, 
not engaging in a repressive legalism like I talked about last week. And so when there are people who are learning through mistakes, growing through failure, growing in an atmosphere of being real, that translates in an amazing way to youth and to kids. Because they see, wow, I see that person over there, they're being real, and I see the reality of Jesus in action. That's, that's our culture that we want to uh, have as we, as we move forward. It's a transformative culture, but it's a transformative culture in grace. Here's the second takeaway. We're asking you to prayerfully consider your role in the process. Think back to the stories that I told when these buildings were being planned. God asked the community to participate in some way. And some probably could, could participate at a very high level, some at a medium, medium level, some maybe at more limited levels, but all participated at some level. And in each case, the tabernacle, the first temple, the second temple, they were given time to digest what the vision was. They had time to think about what they might, they might do. So here's how it, what I would ask of you during the remaining four weeks of the series. Please pray about how God might have you participate. And I think <clears throat> a simple way to think about it is this prayer outline that I've put together. Um, and bullet point number one is, shall I participate? Look, it was obvious in each case that these were free will offerings. So the thing about a free will offering is you, you're, you're free to do or not do. You're free to pick an amount or not pick an amount. And so as you're praying over this, that may be your first prayer. Lord, uh, Grace Community Church, my church is thinking about doing this. Lord, shall I participate? You tell me. And Lord, I'm going to follow your lead. And then if, if he says yes, then the question is how? Lord, how do you want me to participate? What would you have me do? One of the things I find interesting is that God sometimes will give an idea, maybe give a number. Um, and then third, pray about how might God might provide for you as you give. I have talked to so many people who have been generous, thinking, I don't know how I can possibly do this, and the grace of God kicks in, and God empowers their generosity in a miraculous way. And then fourth, pray that God would release the spirit of faith broadly within our church. You know, we're praying that God would break through and do something significant so that we can do what we think he's telling us to do. And so our third takeaway is this. Uh, let's corporately expect for God's manifest presence to come in power. And God's first two buildings, you know, not not no sooner did the prayer of dedication happen than the glory cloud came down. It was delayed with the second temple. It came in Jesus 400 years later. And so our prayer is that God would increasingly make this place a place where we encounter his manifest presence. And so as Jared invited you uh, before, I, I just want to again invite you to our presence worship service tonight, 6 o'clock tonight. And so we would love to have you be there. Let's stand for our closing prayer.